Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Master Historian Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus of History at Exeter University. He is without a doubt one of the leading historians in the Anglophone world today, having written well over 150 books. And today we are discussing one of his latest books, Why the Industrial Revolution Happened in Britain. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, why did you write this book, and what is the thesis of it? Well, I wrote the book because I feel and fear that most economic history is written by specialists who are very focused on mathematical modeling and that while that obviously has its value it is very proves very difficult to communicate to wider audiences and it may well also do violence in my view does do violence to the significant or significance of non-quantifiable factors things like political stability um, in encouraging uh, and making possible economic change. So what I've tried to do is offer, if you like, a qualitative account of industrialization. And I've focused in particular on Britain. But what I've said is also valid and viable for other countries and states, both in the past and in the present. What do you mean exactly by the phrase the Industrial Revolution and who coined it? Well, I mean by the phrase the Industrial Revolution, the transformation in the human experience that is linked to um, industrial change, principally from the late 18th and early 19th century. And the idea of industrialization and an industrial revolution um, was offered by writers, British writers of the 19th century, um, Arnold Toynbee, John Stuart Mill, um, and then taken forward by Marxists. So if you were looking, for example, at Toynbee's lectures, which were published in 1884, you get this idea. And there is a clear reason why particular people embrace the idea, the concept that change has to be revolutionary. That obviously is a difficult one if you're looking at long-term changes. And one of the things about the Industrial Revolution and industrialization as a, as a whole is you can both find um, 
commentators, scholars who have seen particular periods of great change in that, and others that have argued that in Britain, for example, um, it really begins with the increase in the uh, extraction and use of coal from the 16th century. So there are debates about when the Industrial Revolution, however defined, is taken to start, and there are debates over what its causes are and were, sorry, and there are obviously, as you will know, debates about its consequences. And like anything in the past, this also plays through present day uh, issues and indeed in the case of the respective role of coal and slavery, present day culture wars. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the necessary ingredients that Britain possessed which made possible the Industrial Revolution? Well, what I've argued in my book is that it's a mixture of geological good fortune, which I would argue was plentiful and accessible coal and iron supplies. So plentiful, yes, accessible near the surface and uh, um, relatively easy to extract. Technological proficiency, which I think becomes more marked from the 18th century. Entrepreneurial energy, which includes the ability to get a return on capital. Um, labor availability and the population starts to rise from the mid-18th century in a consistent pattern. Um, enlightened thinking, um, political stability, which I think follows the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688 to 89, legal security, and you know, sort of legality of contract, um, relatively low taxation, and imperial power. The fact that um, 1688 was the uh, last successful invasion were of these, the country. Will these variables um, indicate why, say, the Netherlands or France did not um, um, have an industrial revolution prior to or at the same time as, as um, Great Britain? Well, I would argue, yes, and I think you're absolutely right to put your finger on comparative elements. I mean, if you take the Netherlands, for example, what we now colloquially call Holland, um, there were not uh, plentiful and accessible uh, coal and iron supplies. Indeed, uh, coal was principally imported from, from the British Isles. In the case of France, I think there are problems with political instability um, from the 1790s onwards. But prior to that, the government was not a particular supporter of, as it were, what we might call free market capitalism. So you get a government that follows mercantilist policies of the state putting money in particular privileged sectors, which it then protects, uh, but obviously at the same time neglecting the um, economic um, potential of the bulk of the rest of the economy. And I think that was a particular problem uh, with France. Also, of course, whereas Britain became and remains the largest free trade area in Europe with comparable circumstances for labor and capital flows, there were um, in France, even more in the German and Italian states, of course, um, internal tariff boundaries. To employ a phrase of Walt Whitman Rostow, when approximately did the Industrial Revolution, quote, take off, unquote? Oh, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a very interesting one. And again, as you will know, um, there has been considerable debate on this matter. I mean, in aggregate terms, 
I think it's fair to say much of industrialization in terms of the use of factory production for many industries is really a 19th century matter. But of course, in terms of beginning of steam-powered industrial procedures, you can see that in the 18th century. And every single steam engine uh, was, as it were, an investment for change. So I think what one's got to say is there are leading sectors, both geographically and uh, in terms of particular processes in the 18th century, but a more general process in the 19th. That's where I would put um, the, uh, the balance. How important, in your view, if at all, was Britain's colonies and the slave trade to Britain's Industrial Revolution? Well, um, you've read the book, and you will know that I argue that, uh, you know, there's a whole chapter called The Contributions of Trade and Slavery. I think trade, yes, slavery I'm much more ambivalent about. I mean, there are clearly some sectors that benefit from slavery, but it's worth pointing out that the largest um, slave empire in the Atlantic world of the 18th century was Portugal, um, massive a uh, number of slaves in it in Brazil, and of course Portugal is a country that does not um, industrialize um, uh, in part well for a whole host of reasons doesn 't have an entrepreneurial middling order um, doesn 't have uh, coal and iron there are all sorts of factors to uh, to look at so no, I would say that um, that although the slave trade which I, you know which was a horrible um, uh, activity as slavery was as a whole, although the slave trade in part was helped by British industrialization. I mean, obviously, the Africans who sold other Africans as slaves um, had to be paid. And one of the classic things they were paid with was trade goods, um, including British woolen and iron exports. So, I mean, that is obviously significant. But I would say, no, we're not actually seeing slavery as as important as as coal and coal-based production. What type of individuals were the first entrepreneurs? Um, Well, as in the nature of society of that period, and without implying this in any way uh, was a matter of talent, they were men. Um, As in the nature of society of that period, um, and without implying, um, shall we say, any criticism of the illiterate, they were on the whole literate, skilled individuals, many of whom had a background in um, already artisanal procedures and sought to find uh, better ways of um, uh, producing machinery that would make these um, activities such as woolen textile manufacture or cotton textile manufacture or metallurgy make them more efficient. So, and indeed, I think it's worth bearing in mind that you have a incrementalism, lots of people uh, taking part in this activity, these activities. Again, you get the same thing with the establishment of the locomotive engine. You know, classically, we say Stevenson. Well, yes, he was important classically for the steam engine. We say James Watt. Yes, of course, he was important. But there are other people involved. Um, Disproportionately, I think one can say, and this might be linked to um, uh, literacy factors, disproportionately, um, people were nonconformist or low church. 
Um, disproportionately, for obvious reasons, uh, they lived in or close to already existing um, industrial areas. Um, the landed elite uh, might well put up, often did put up, capital, but it tended to be more interested in making either personal profits through government office or if it was interested in um, economic improvement, um, more in sponsoring and often taking a more direct role in things like the selective breeding of animals or the development of um, ag agricultural rotations or the encouragement of nitrogen, the cultivation of nitrogenous plots, you know, people like Turner. Townsend, for example, who was a Viscount um, and had been Secretary of State for the Northern Department. Well, there's nobody comparable to that um, in industry. How important was the canal network to Britain's Industrial Revolution? Well, I would argue that canals are very important, as are turnpiking. Both of them, of course, uh, turnpiking of roads. Both of them, as of course, come before steam-powered locomotion. And what both of them do is make it easier and more predictable to move goods. And what that does is it speeds up the supply of product to consumers. It makes consumerism more active. Um, it increases the circulation of goods and therefore capital, which therefore encourages the investment in, of capital in areas where you can get uh, productive um, efficiencies and where entrepreneurs are more present. And canals also, in specific terms, make it cheaper to move bulk goods. And as you will know, um, a major uh, reason for the development of canals was to move, uh, and then later also, of course, early railways, was to move coal. Uh, other bulk goods include iron, stone, uh, grain, all of which are much more easily moved by this means because turnpikes, whilst useful and whilst encouraging uh, the movement of higher value goods are not very good for bulk goods. You would just need too many uh, carts. And of course, you would have to use so much forage for them. Uh, when did contemporaries first notice that Industrial Revolution was taking place? Well, that's, again, a fascinating question. I mean, I think it's fair to say that people were starting to observe significant changes by the 1760s and 70s. And these included not just uh, British commentators, but, but foreign commentators. I wrote some time ago about a... Um, an Austrian called Zinzendorf, who travelled round in the 1760s and 70s and left a large manuscript account of his travels in Britain, which is in Hausaufenstaatsarchiv in Vienna. Um, and he's very drawn to factories and to industrial production in a way that, say, Voltaire and Montesquieu visiting in the 1720s are not. Um, whereas foreigners have focused very heavily on London and on the new sites of commerce, such as the Bank of England, founded in 1694, um, or the Royal Exchange, uh, people by the late 18th century are fascinated by industrial scenes. And of course, these also play a role in the visual arts, the uh, famous works by people like Lautenberg 
of Colebrookdale, for example, the great Shropshire Centre of Metallurgy. Colebrookdale by night uh, produces furnace seams which are akin in their aesthetic power and attraction and are displayed accordingly to the scenes of Vesuvius by night, which the grand tourists bring back. And I think that's quite an interesting, I mean, that comparison hasn't struck me till just now, but I think that's quite interesting that there is an aesthetic interest as well in aspects of industrialization. Now, of course, that aesthetic interest doesn't uh, focus on the uh, hardships caused to workers, uh, on environmental degradation and other such factors, but it does capture the shock of the new. And the shock of the new is very dramatic because essentially that's the significance of the Industrial Revolution. Until then, human history had largely been cyclical um, and very much dominated by natural rhythms and regimes. um, And that situation essentially changes with Industrial Revolution. And that's why you get the onset of what we might call, and I think accurately so, modernity. How important to Britain's Industrial Revolution was its agriculture? The agriculture was significant, there's no doubt about it, in the sense that um, agricultural improvement means that you can produce uh, more uh, product with uh, fewer labourers and therefore release labour for industrial activity. But let's be clear about this, Britain couldn't feed itself, particularly from the mid uh, 18th century as the population rose um, and as, it, as a result it's the strength of the economy which helps to produce a, um, a uh, positive um, export um, and balance of payments uh, regime which makes it possible in the eight, late 18th century to buy for example Baltic grain and of course in the 19th century means that Britain can benefit from um, uh, sort of grain production in North America, uh, beef in Argentina, uh, mutton and lamb in Australasia, uh, all of which in turn reflect both technology, um, you know, uh, steamships, railways and refrigeration, but also, as I've argued, um, as it were, Uh, qualitative factors such as the extent to which um, free trade and trade, whether even if it bears a tariff, um, is able in the sort of late 19th century um, to take part without having to have high protection costs. In other words, you know, there is essentially the oceans are relatively safe from piracy and relatively safe um, from the British point of view from uh, interruption by foreign powers between the Napoleonic Wars and World War One. Why did Britain's Industrial Revolution predominantly take place in the Midlands? Well, I wouldn't say just in the Midlands. I think the Midlands is a crucial area of, in, of manufacturing. But there's also, I would also say, if you're looking at southern Lancashire, southern Yorkshire, uh, the lower valleys of the Tyne and the Weir, and um, the central lowlands of Scotland. And I think all of those, there's no accident that they're essentially coal-based, but they are all also different. And there is a degree of 
economic specialisation. So, for example, hosiery in Nottingham is not matched uh, by anything comparable in Newcastle. So there are, whereas, you know, in Newcastle, um, you've got the availability of coal uh, helps to lead to, for example, glass production. Um, But you're absolutely right. There are some parts of the country which either see limited industrial activity or de-industrialisation. I mean, where I live Devon had been a major area for woolen uh, cloth manufacture and export uh, but it was essentially based on water power and that became relatively uh, less uh, efficient relatively less capital returning once you have coal power and there isn't coal in Devon so Devon uh, de-industrialized so did Um, East Anglia, another great area of former textile production. So you do get shifts in production. Uh, In the southeast, the charcoal-based economy in the Weald in in Kent and Sussex um, disappears or largely disappears um, as a result of charcoal um, um, being less efficient as a as a producer of calorific value of fuel um, than uh, than coal. So I think coal is quite important in helping sort out um, the re- regions and how they do, and then subregions um, within the British Isles. And it's no accident, I think, linked to that that you get relatively little industrialisation in Ireland because Ireland doesn't have uh, much coal. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, what I would want them to take away from my book is that in order to understand economic change, we should not be treating it as a branch of mathematics and theory. It's much more significant to look at what people often call non-economic factors, such as political stability, the nature of the rule of law, the nature of society. I would argue those factors are also central to economic um, functions and they're central to economic prosperity. So this is a book not just about Britain and the past, it's also a book about the present, how we look at the world economy today and uh, how we should look at um, our past and the fights we, we, as it were, bring to the fore about them. These, these issues are important, and they're too important to, lay, to leave to simply number crunchers as an explanation for change and proficiency. They may observe, they cannot explain. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind and speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black, very much. Thank you very much, and may I say good morning, or it may now be good afternoon, to my American friends, acquaintances, and listeners. I greatly appreciate the way in which there is an Anglosphere, in which there is a free market, a free exchange of ideas, and I think it's absolutely crucial to the world we live in. Agreed. Thank you again, Professor. Thank you.